Hello, Buddhist geeks. Vince Horn here for another episode of this podcast that just keeps on going. And I'm um, happy to be joined today by my guest, Lama Rod Owens, who recently released a new book. We're going to be talking about it, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. Lama Rod, thank you so much for taking the time to be here in the midst of a move. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, it's no problem. And I understand you're moving uh, back home to uh, to to Georgia, where you're from originally. Congrats. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. The political center of the universe uh, at the moment that we're recording this just after the elections here in the U.S. Yeah, that's right. It's no place better to be than the center of the universe right now. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. So happy to hear you're going to be back there. Um, so I, I have to say, first of all, I really, really, really enjoy uh, the your book and um, love the topic and the theme um, as a fellow aversive type person mm -hmm. um, who struggled a lot with uh, anger and, and rage. Uh, it was so cool to see someone kind of approach that directly instead of, um, I don't know, kind of trying to spiritualize anger. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved it in the very opening of the book where you kind of talk about the purpose of it. You said, to begin with, this is not a mindfulness book on how to bypass anger and focus on happiness. Yeah. Nor is this a book about using any other spiritual path to transform the nature of anger into something more profound or transcendent. Right. Ooh, that's interesting. This book is about facing our anger yeah. and welcoming it as a teacher and friend yeah. so it can help us to benefit ourselves and others. I was wondering if you could start just by uh, sharing how you came to write this book. Like, what was the journey for you to come from where you started to to being in a position where you could you could write a book like this? Yeah. And I'm very curious. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, in writing the book, I was, you know, absolutely clear as you just read. You know, I didn't want to write a book, <laughs> a mindfulness book about anger, or like trying to like. Uh, recreate anger, reimagine anger to be something really beautiful and transcendent. I, I wanted to write a book that invited us to sit face to face with our anger and to invite it and to hold space for it and to love it. <laughs> you know, mm. and that that's a that's a challenge, right? You know, and and it was, and I knew it was going to be a challenge to do that. You know, and th and this book, you know thinking about origins, this book really began to call me, you know, right after the 2016 elections, actually exactly four years ago. Mm. Um, you know, after the elections, like people were just, as we can reflect back, really, really struggling, yes. including myself, you know. And so, so many of the questions I started to get right after the elections were about anger, you know, anger and sadness. You know, what do we do with these energies? You know, and people were organizing and getting, you know, mobilized. And that was really beautiful. And I was out, you know, organizing and training, you know, around, you know, activism and bringing practice into activism. And I kept doing that for a couple of months after the elections. But again, the questions over and over again, what about the anger? What about the anger? And so it really began to dawn on me that I needed to write a book examining anger but i was super resistant because I, I didn't really feel like i had anything interesting to say about anger 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I I thought, well, you know, there are so many books out there on anger, Buddhist books, self help books, mindfulness books. I think they, you know, I think that would be enough. You know, I think people have plenty of resources. But as I kind of revisited some of these texts, and some of these texts and books I'd read at the very beginning of my Dharma practice in my twenties, you know, as I revisited them, I said, oh, like I'm, they actually don't speak to me anymore. Hmm. Um. And because I have grown and developed and deepened so much over my Dharma practice. And and so when I came back to just actually getting serious about the book, I said, okay, if I'm going to write this book, I have to talk about myself. I have to talk about where I come from. I have to bring in all the practices that I have been working with. You know, in all the lineages that I've trained in, I have to bring all that together. And not only do I have to bring all this together, it has to be accessible, you know, because mm. I actually didn't write this book for Buddhists. Mm. You know, I actually like never write anything for Buddhists, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, like Buddhists, the Buddhist communities aren't my target audience, actually, you know, which is interesting to say since I'm a Buddhist teacher. Um, but I wanted to write this book for black people and queer people and trans folks and, and, um, you know, indigenous, you know, groups and, and other groups of color and communities of color and, you know, people experiencing, you know, really intense anger, but wanting to really be in a relationship to that anger because Somehow they know anger is really important, but they don't want to bypass it, Hmm. you know, and kind of growing up in this body, you know, as a black queer person, my anger has always been really close to me in one way, right? But in another way, it's also been really hidden at the same time. And it's been hidden because when I was growing up, you know, as, you know, a black boy in the South, a black queer boy in the South, I knew that my anger was really dangerous, you know, and I saw how other black men particularly were policed, you know, as they embodied their anger, they were seen as dangerous. And there's a whole history of the ways in which um, black folks have been policed and disciplined and, and killed, hmm. you know, because of our expression of anger. So I, I found the expression of anger to be dangerous. And so I felt the safest way for me to express anger was to rechannel it into passive aggressiveness. Mm. So that became my channel for anger. And so when I got into my 20s and really just began to like get interested in practice, my elders came to me and said, you know, Rod, you're really angry, you know, and you need to actually start digging that that anger up and paying attention to it. I had no idea what they were talking about because I was so disconnected from the anger. Right. And so I started this really intense work of really turning my awareness into the anger, you know, and, and, and pulling that anger out of this kind of indirect passive aggressiveness into a deeper, fuller embodiment where I could hold space for it and pay attention to it, you know, and, and not to overreact to it in a way that creates harm for myself and others, but to hold space for it. So it could inform me about the best choices and decisions to make about what to do in particular situations. Hmm. Um, So all of that, that was really the heart of, of the book was like that, that particular ethic it's like, let's look at anger and let's take care of it and let it inform us 
you know, and guide us in making choices and decisions that are about, you know, reducing harm and violence, but it's also about disrupting um, the roots of harm and violence at the same time. And it's a very tricky, um, nuanced practice, you know, because many of us, again, we actually don't know how to be in a clear, open, spacious relationship with our anger. And so, mm-hmm. and that's the book that I wanted to write, you know, and it was a really hard book to write as well. You know, um, I was going to ask, like, what what was it like actually writing the book? Because yeah. I could imagine you'd have to be just confronted directly with with all of this. Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, it was a really like it took a lot of support for me to write mm. the book. It took a lot um, because for most of the book, you know, it was really actually working with these kind of higher expressions of energies. You know, it was actually opening up and channeling and touching into for me the realm of the ancestors you Mm. know and and that's and that's also something that i think also makes my practice unique in the world of dramas that like i'm deeply influenced by other spiritual traditions particularly traditions that come out of the african diaspora Mm. you know so i work with ancestors i work with other deities that we don't often find um, in um, the Buddhist um, pantheon. And so I worked with these beings, these energies, and it really helped me to translate um, so much of, of this material um, and to, to really also speak from a kind of vulnerability as well. You know, I often talk about how I don't like really read Dharma books and I don't (laughs) read (laughs) Dharma Dharma books because I'm really craving real vulnerability and openness, you know, and depth. I'm not interested in Dharma books that just kind of, they, they just, they're just re, uh, they're just explaining, you know, um, dharma in these old you know cliche ways Mm. you know and what i'm interested in is a new in-depth kind of expression of dharma that comes out of our intersectionality comes out out of our identities Mm. you know i'm interested in black queer fat poor dharmas Mm. you know um, like, don't tell me about the four noble truths. I want you to talk about how you embody those four noble truths as you move through the world, situated mm. within your identities. That's what I'm interested in. That's how I choose to write. Mm. You know, and I know people. You know, that's something that people get really put off on. You know, because I think one of the tenets or one of the values that's kind of embraced in many Dharma communities is that one shouldn't be self-referential. We should not refer to ourselves. You know, I think we have no choice but to refer to ourselves to make the person to make the Dharma personal. You know, as you make Mm. the Dharma personal, you're making it political. Mm. You know, and there's this resistance to the politicizing of Dharma, but Dharma is a political project. (laughs) You Mm. know, yeah, like the Buddha started Dharma as the Buddha started a cult. Mm -hmm. You know, and then strategically thought about how to sustain a cult within a dominant culture yeah outside of the the normal caste system yeah 
exactly. You know, nothing but politicizing. I think, you know, but anyway, like that the personal is political. And I wanted to bring that into the writing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think you do a great job of that. Um, as while I'm reading it, it, it brings up a lot of kind of reflections, um, Particularly, it had, it had me turn back and look at my own identity and conditioning, you know, and mm-hmm. it was interesting to note, you know, some commonalities um, as I read, I read about your, you know, social position, kind of how you locate yourself, your identities, um, the intersecting ones. And, you know, it was interesting to note like, oh, yeah, we're, we're both male identified. We're both cisgender. You know, mm-hmm. we both, uh, our gender expression matches the, our, our identity, the inside and the outside match. We're both uh, shit-talking Southerners, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> aversive types, I imagine. Uh, we both found the path of Buddhism and become Dharma teachers and found that liberating to some degree. And, and yet, you know, I notice also, you know, I'm, I'm an ethnically white. Mm-hmm. My background is um, Scotch-Irish and Palestinian. Okay. And you're black. You know, I'm heterosexual. You're queer. Mm-hmm. Um, I trained in the Insight Theravada tradition. Mm-hmm. You're trained in the tibetan vajrayana tradition which you know for those in for those outside of buddhism that may not sound like much of a difference but for those on the inside you know <laughs> it's night and day hinayana vajrayana um you know and i just mentioned those things just you know to to, uh, to acknowledge my my own um conditioning yeah and also you know one thing i was kind of i wanted to bring up and 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 and, and chat with you about is the topic of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this is something that I felt like I could both relate to in some ways, what you were saying, and also likely have a, a different experience. And, um, you know, be, being part Palestinian, my mom was born in Kuwait. My grandfather yeah. immigrated as a teenager um, to the States a few years after, you know, he and his eight brothers and parents were uh, kicked out of their homelands mm-hmm. uh, at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's always been a big part of my practice and uh, what I've had to work with is kind of the, the intergenerational trauma. And I noticed over the years that it was very hard in a way to even acknowledge it because of this sort of dominant cultural idea of individualism, yeah. you know, that like I, like I somehow just emerge out of nowhere and then everything I do, it's really like my choice and it's about yeah. me and I have nothing to do really with my ancestors in that sense. It's like a break from the past. And it, it really took, you know, what you're saying about ancestry just makes so much sense to me because how else could you really heal that intergenerational trauma without acknowledging and owning the history that's present that in, in, in one's own body? Exactly. And I just so appreciated, you know, how you talked about that and how you you spoke about your own experience growing up in Rome, mm-hmm. um, being, you know, living on the site of the Trail of Tears, which yeah. is the same here, you know, in yeah. Western North Carolina, um, and how you descended, you know, from stolen people yeah. who were resettled and enslaved yeah. on stolen land. You, yeah. said, you write, I, my ancestors and indigenous Americans, mm-hmm. as well as the land, are all still in trauma yeah. from this violence. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wondered if you could maybe talk about your experience and understanding of intergenerational trauma, like how it, it seems to me like you present the path of meditation as a path of, 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 of healing as yes. well. Yes. Well, you know, healing is liberation. 
mm. for me and my work. You know, I think that's been really so much a part of, you know, what I've been doing for a couple of years, even since Radical Dharma. Um, and, you know, this, this, the, the reality of, of, you know, intergenerational trauma and transhistorical trauma is something that, you know, as you so beautifully, you know, explain it lives in our bodies, you know, and it lives in our, in our, in the land. Right. And for me, transhistorical trauma for, for a while was something that I actually didn't understand that I didn't get. Um, and it wasn't until I started having conversations actually with Jewish friends whose families survived the Holocaust and whose families survived war camps and death camps, you mm. know, particularly in Poland, um, that I began to like have a framework to understand intergenerational trauma um, from my perspective, you know, as, as a black person, black queer person, you know, and it's also been the work of um, Dr. Georgia Grew um, in her really groundbreaking work, um, Trans um, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, you know, which is a book, I think it's about, I want to say it's 10 years old now, but like that was groundbreaking for me, for her to talk about the transference of trauma from generation to generation, right? You know, and how there's been this traumatic experience in one's familial past and how that trauma, if it's not held and healed and dealt with, it just continues to be passed on energetically. Yes. From generation to generation. And I, you know, I remember hearing, hearing stories from friends who are sober, you know, and friends who make these commitments to stay sober. And they make mm. those commitments because they realize that addiction is a, a kind of trauma that's been passed from generation to generation in their families. And they decided that the best way to stop that was to, to actually renounce you know, substances, you know, to keep that, that trauma from passing on into the next generation. I just, hmm. I, I, I have received so much inspiration from friends making that choice, you know? Um, so as, as a black queer person and as a drama practitioner and teacher, I asked myself, okay, what do I do now to disrupt the transference of trauma into the next generation? I s often say, descendants you know when i talk about the next generation i say my descendants mm. you know how do i continue to disrupt that trauma and first of all is practice right mm. it's it's working with my own mind and then going further and going deeper and healing the wounds of trauma that have been passed to me from my family you know and from mm. my ancestors mm. um and of course you know in my practice um because so i do a lot of shamanic practice you know, so, so much of my shamanic practice has been about ancestor cleansing practices, which is going back into points in our ancestry through meditation and ceremony to actually mm. begin to undo, you know, traumas, wow. you know, and for me, um, I talk about, well, I, I, I've practiced a lot of like going back into the middle passage, for instance, you know, to to work with the trauma of the Middle Passage and the transatlantic um, slave um, um, slave system and transportation. Um, and I have a chapter on this particular work um, coming out in an anthology called Black and Buddhists, um, which will be coming out um, next month through Shambhala 
publications. Um, and it's an anthology um, of several Black prominent teachers right now. And my um, contribution is, is about this work um, using practice and ceremony to disrupt um, transhistorical and intergenerational trauma. Um, mm. But most of us, you know, just in general, I think many of us who are coming out, I mean, I, I would say everyone is actually struggling with some form of transhistorical trauma, regardless mm. right. of our culture, ethnicity, you know, whatever, you know, because so much of how we're functioning right now is just a trauma response. Mm. You know? I, I look at whiteness, white supremacy as a trauma response. Hmm. You know, um, I, you know it, the ways in which we have to deny a part of ourselves in order to fit into a system. You know, even as cisgender men, cis, you know, cisgender male-identified folks, you know, there's also been a trauma of patriarchy. The ways in which we've had to choose to be certain ways in order um, to to be a part of the system of patriarchy. Right, and then the work that we have to do to undo that, mm. and that undoing patriarchy is really about healing the trauma of what's meant to be conditioned and informed as a cisgender person in this culture, and the mm. sacrifices that we've had to make, and the ways in which we've had to distance ourselves from our bodies, because our bodies, you know, actually, it, it tells the narrative of pain and woundedness, you know, that we've had to endure in order to participate in systems that are really about the repression and violence of other groups, mm. you know, and the body keeps the score mm. in that way. Right. You know, and so the most, the safest place for us to be is to be disembodied. You know, we're disembodied as individuals. We're disembodied as a culture, as a country. You know, everything that we're going through right now as a country is just an expression of trauma and disembodiment. Mm. And we have to start naming that or we won't ever heal. Like, we'll just continue to repeat these cycles over and over again. We will continue to repeat genocide and slavery and abuse and systems of power, you know, and, and violence over and over and over again, you know, until we heal the root of trauma. Mm. And that's what I hope the book is trying to do. And this is why I write so much about trauma. You know, right. I'm not, I, I don't know if I'm an expert on trauma. I've studied enough <laughs> to, to understand what trauma is for myself and to understand certain aspects of trauma that um, I feel Dharma um, can really help and support. You know, I remember talking to one of my friends who's a therapist and, I was shocked to find out that like most therapeutic program, most therapy programs don't even require folks to do therapy themselves yeah. to yep. become a therapist, yep. you know? So to me, when I hear someone who's familiar with it through their own experience, it sounds a lot more, you know, trustworthy than having um, gotten a degree. Yeah. Know? Like literally I, I know therapists, you know, and I'm like, wow, like you, you actually help people because you're, a mess. <laughs> like literally, I've had that thought several times for several colleagues and friends. I'm like, wow, 
like would people come to you if they knew that you were a mess in your personal <laughs> life? You know, that's a fair that's a fair question. I, I, I ask that of myself often as a Dharma teacher. So I wonder, <laughs> right? You know, we know, and I, I tell people like you know what you see and hear is what you get, and this is who I am, both mm-hmm. publicly and personally. And that's a that's an ethic that I've worked really hard, you know, to to train in, you know, yeah. because I I just feel like there's so much more freedom mm. when you just put all the cards on the table, mm. <laughs> you know, publicly, mm. particularly. You just put everything. This is like who I am. This is what I do. I don't do anything differently in my public life, nor am I interested in the ways in which I am judged for not fulfilling your expectations of a Dharma teacher, you know? Mm. And again, that's in the book too. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, you know, in the book, I'm just like, whatever, (laughs) you know, it's, this is what I've done to experience some spaciousness and liberation. And this is my Dharma and you can take it or leave it, you Mm. know? Um, But you have to have that audacity, you know, and I think that that helps me to to really have a fuller personal life and public Dharma life. Mm. You know, closing the gap between between the the two, the private and the public. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it's the same. You know, as you pointed out, like it's the same thing for Dharma teachers as well. I'm like, well, totally. If some of your teachers knew what you were doing <laughs> when you weren't public, then I think you would be having a different experience. You know, right now with students, um, but yeah, I, I find a lot of what you're saying to be resonant. You know, the I think the teachers that I've learned the most from were the ones that were always like they went out of their way to point out their humanity to me. You know, to um, you know, to fart in front of me and yeah. to like talk about their struggles with addiction and yeah. talk about the things that they've failed at, you know, in their yeah. family life. And yeah, those are the teachers I just have found just the most heartening to be around because I, I feel like I can just be a fucked up human being. Yeah. And it's like, it's not, doesn't mean I'm a failed uh, Dharma practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's not about trying to like be enlightened. It's actually about trying to be human. You yeah. Know? And you know, but the other side of this too is that you know, we have to be very careful in in how we may potentially be forcing people or influencing people to do work for us, you know, mm-hmm. as teachers as well. And that's also a line, you know, that I have to be really careful about. It's like when I talk about myself and the ways I talk about myself in my writing or just in my teaching, you know, I talk about it in a way that it's, it's coming from a place of me doing the work for myself, not me using my audience for group therapy, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's the difference, you know, and I know that the pushback against this kind of self-referential kind of personal open, you know, Dharma teaching, it comes from that, that fear that, you know, we may manipulate students and audiences to do emotional labor for us. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, it's like if we're just if we're holding our own practice and doing our own work, what we're doing is sharing, and that kind of sharing from that personal work just becomes a mirror for other people where you're saying, you know what, here's what I'm doing. What are you doing? 
you know, mm-hmm. how are mm-hmm. you managing? Right. Yes. You know, instead of saying, you know what, I've had like a really shitty life. I need you to take care of me. <laughs> and I'm going to use this, this teaching position or even like the therapy seat, <laughs> you know, because I yeah. therapists who cross that line, Sure. you know, and make therapy about themselves, not about their patients, you know, but when you cross that line, that's when the, the harm is happening, mm. you know, but I, I think in love and rage, you know, that's the line that I'm towing. It's like, yeah, I want you to see this, you know, but I also want you to know that I'm okay. Like this, like I have a practice, I'm engaged in practice. I've come a very long way and I'm only sharing this because I just want you to know what the work is to do this, you know, like it's just not about just like paying attention to the anger. You have to pay attention to the hurt beneath the anger. And for me, the hurt is where the energy is. Like personally, you know, in my practice, it's the woundedness, the hurt, the heartbrokenness, the trauma, the sorrow, the despair beneath the anger that I've had to really, really invest a lot of effort in into holding. You know, that's why there's so much material in Love and Rage about suffering and hurt and trauma, right? You know, so it's it's almost like a book that's more about the brokenheartedness than it is about the anger, mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um but we have to have the support and the courage to go into these dark places, mm. you know, um, and to go into the energy itself, to go into the body and to like look at the body, which is, you know, again, our, all of our bodies have very different narratives, you know, but mm. for me, what excites me about Dharma is this invitation to go into the dark places. Mm. Yeah, it's in- interesting that you say that because I, you're know, going back to the difference of our, you know, kind of um, maybe home home lineages mm-hmm. you know, in the Buddhist tradition. I know you've trained in a lot of different mm-hmm. places as I, and thank gosh because if you know if, if I were just rooted in the in the sort of Theravada conception, yeah. I think I wouldn't be going into the dark places because yeah. it's not really. That's not really the strong suit of early Buddhism, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, and where, whereas in the Vajrayana, that's something mm-hmm. I've so much appreciated um, studying with some of the teachers, you know, that study with Trungpa yeah. and Europa and and elsewhere, where you know there is that at least there's an invitation, you know, to to not turn away from from the energies of anger or you know lust or like these things aren't like we have to get rid of them and that's the 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 journey is to transcend them but but somehow like to come into relationship with them yeah yeah i appreciate that yeah you know speaking of that um you know power comes up a lot Mm -hmm. around around the vajrayana teachings and and i love that you um both are looking at it from the kind of buddhist perspective but also from a sort of social perspective and um, here I just wanted to share something that I read that, that uh, stood out. Said uh, You said, many of us have a complicated relationship with power. Mm-hmm. This is probably because many of us uh, have been abused by the expression of power in interpersonal relationships, as well as have been victimized by systemic power and other forms of abusive hierarchical power. And you said, power is often judged to be negative, however... Power is neither negative nor positive. Power is power. It's always happening. We're always making decisions, influencing others. 
or adhering to the prescription of systems and institutions. Mm -hmm. What determines our expression of power is our relationship to it. Mm -hmm. Could you say a bit more about that? Like mm -hmm. what, how you understand power? Because this is a, I often find that when people are critical of systemic power mm -hmm. abuses, that they often also seem to be critical of power itself. Yeah. And I found you're, you're like there's a lot more um, complexity in what you're sharing here. Yeah. Well, power is always happening, you know, and I, you know, coming out of, you know, a lot of, you know, activist communities and organizing communities where there was just like hostility towards power. And I would always think, but like, we're exercising power too, <laughs> you know, mm. and, and, you know, I've been, you know, past couple of years been really trying to get deeper into like what power is. I have this hunger to really understand power. And so that was like an attempt, you know, to kind of like, you know, to express, okay, where am I at with this? You know, and I have a long ways to go. Um, but where I'm at now is that like, yeah, it's, Often why what I have found is that yes, we have trauma around power abuse. You know, and that trauma actually prevents us from connecting to our to our own power, you know, which I often call mm. agency. Mm -hmm. You know? And it and it and it's like when I express my agency, then I trigger that trauma of the ways in which power has been used to hurt me. And so we struggle to connect to our own power. Mm. Um and we're and, and and we're also really sensitive, and I think rightly so, about how our power creates violence for others. You know, and that's important. I think there's a lot of a lot of super intensity that goes into that, that kind of like examining, okay, how am I creating violence for other people? And so like the way that I get into this in a way that I think is healing, at least for me, is that how do I begin to have agency with myself first mm. and foremost what does it mean to be in power with myself you know what and that i think that being in power with ourselves is really the expression of awareness mm. practice like it's like how do i just become aware of myself and begin to hold space for all the ways in which i'm showing up right now you know and how can i allow myself to show up and allow myself to show up and then actually disrupt the ways in which I'm always habitually reacting to how I'm showing up, you know? And I think that will begin to disrupt the ways in which we exert power over others, you know? But it's, it's also that showing up also helps us to hold space for the pain, for the woundedness, and which is where many of us are acting out of, you know, to create harm and repression for others around us. Mm. You know, because we we don't know how to hold space for the pain. So we're going to try to control the world around us to minimize, you know, this reality of suffering and pain for ourselves, you know. And so then, yeah, then we, you know, then we have these systems of patriarchy, which is really a system of rigidity and control and labeling, categorizing. Right. If we just oversimplify the world, then we won't have to deal with the complexity of what it means to be deeply traumatized you know we can actually bypass you know our own trauma if we can just control the world so that the world around us mm. won't challenge us to think about anything that we don't mm. want to think about 
Yeah, you and know? you mentioned that old adage of you know, co- co- instead of covering the world with yeah. uh, with leather cover- covering your feet. Yeah, which can be used uh, kind of. It can that that can also be weaponized, of yeah, course. Exactly. But yeah, that's yeah. a powerful position to be in. Yeah, I mean, our traumas creating the world around us, and we do that through exerting power and exercising power, trying to control. The situation yeah yeah, you know, yeah. That's you know. that is powerful to see that <laughs> <laughs> you know like so you're you're the ways in which people are controlling me it's just the ways in which they're reacting to their trauma hmm. you know instead of turning around and going inward and actually going into the heart of that trauma yes you know again it's just like you know how do you you know, how do you make the choice to heal ourselves instead of trying to cleanse the world of all the triggers? Mm. Let me ask you about this, Lama Rod, because mm-hmm. what I've noticed in doing and attempting to do the work you're describing of sort of turning it back in, mm-hmm. I've noticed that self-pity yeah. is such a common mm-hmm. arising. And it, it's one that's like, very tricky sometimes to, yeah. to to even recognize it's like yeah. no i it really is true i'm just pitiful and yeah. it's like i'm justified and feeling this way and thus i'm not actually going to keep looking i'm going to you know just stop and yeah. start trying to fix the situation or the other yeah. people that are causing the pain yeah. <laughs> yeah. what's your experience with how do, how do you how does one work with pity in in, in your, your your understanding of things yeah. your experience well, pity is a depressing energy and it's easy for us to get sucked into it, mm. you know, and it's also pity is, is something that justifies our laziness. Yes. You know, so, oh, you know, I'm just a poor person. I'm just like, oh, I'm just awful. You know, as we say in the South, you know, just bless my heart. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> like honey. I'm just, honey, honey, bless, you know. Like, I'm just, I'm just pitiful. Like, I just like, I can't, I can't do anything. And it's just a really easy place to be. And that's when we are giving up power, Mm. you know, like we're, we're just like sidestepping being in power with ourselves and just like choosing to be dominated, you know, by, you know, the guilt or the sadness or whatever it may be, you know, um, but to do this work, you know, of being in power with ourselves, we actually have to turn our attention to the pity and say, you know, yeah, like, yeah, I am struggling, but that's okay. You know, mm-hmm. and that we have to commit ourselves to doing this really hard work, really ultimately loving ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that's the antidote to self-pity. It's like, I just want to love myself and loving myself. I'm just trying to like accept myself and hold space for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, and know that, like, it's not about perfection, you know, and I think, you know, this idea of perfection is like this white supremacist capitalistic notion that there's a way that we have to be, but this way that we have to be doesn't exist because it's always, it feels like a moving target, you know, it's like we, we're never perfect, but we're always struggling to be perfect, you know, and that gets in, that mixes into the self-pity because I can never be perfect enough, you know, and how do we just d- disrupt that, that mm. notion altogether of perfection, 
you know, and how do we, you know, and that goes really actually, that reminds me of enlightenment, hmm. you know, where enlightenment is in the literature can be viewed as this perfect state. Hmm. But for me, it's, I have, I've never seen enlightenment as a perfect state. I've seen it as a working state. Hmm. I've seen it as a state of having obtained a certain level of realization, but it's actually not the ending of work. It's the continuation of the work, particularly if you're committed to being in the world. Right. You know, I just don't get enlightened. Everything's perfect. No, you're still in the world. You're still embodied. And there's still karma happening. Mm-hmm. And that we're being called to work with it. You know, and I think that's, you know, I see people experience a small level of, of realization and then all of a sudden that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I see that, you know, with a lot of cult leaders, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. modern cults where you have these usually white guys who mm-hmm. go to India, you know, <laughs> or read a book <laughs> and yep. they get like, this glimpse of enlightenment, this glimpse of realization, they come back and they're just like, they just set themselves. They get stagnant in that realization. Yeah. Instead of like seeing it as continuous work, you know, um, and that's dangerous. You know, that's dangerous because we have to continue to work to see all the ways in which ego is still casting shadows, even within realized or enlightened states. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it seems like too, you know, again, going back to the Theravada tradition where you've got a really pretty kind of dualistic understanding of enlightenment, you know, it's yeah. literally this cosmological dualism, yeah. nirvana and samsara. Yeah. Um, it seems like it's so easy to get just caught, like caught up there to like plant the flag mm. in this sort of, yeah. you know, half-baked um <laughs> realization and you know and i and i get it i get it having gone through it you know i feel like it's almost i I sometimes feel like it's a stage in the journey too you know that people will like it's kind of natural to transcend yourself or transcend your self-identification but then you know then what then you just build up this like new self of like my enlightened self that's selfless yeah you know it's it's just contradictory and embarrassing you know (laughs) um, but so many people it seems like they can they can do that like you're saying they can if they insulate themselves and they get everyone to buy that fantasy then they can kind of hang out there for quite a while yeah and that's uh it is scary it's really scary because of the results that, that come from that yeah you know just hanging out in this place that feels good, actually. Yes. You know, I just I just think about bodhicitta, though. Like, this is kind of wish, this aspiration to free others, right? You know, as we do the work to free ourselves. I just feel like if you're really committed to the liberation of people, then you have to be committed to the continuous work, regardless mm. of where you find yourself, you know, on, on you know, the stages of enlightenment, right? Mm. Um. But it's not just the teachers, right? You know, as a student, Mm -hmm. I know that, again, agency, I have to have agency. You know, like when I am studying with a teacher, yes, devotion is really important to me, but also my self-agency is really important. So I want to question, right? You know, I want to be, I want to be active in how I'm being in relationship to a teacher, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. that... yes. I think there's a level of education that we have to go through as students that we're not getting, you know, to, to know how to be students and to know mm. how to be empowered students, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, and just say, huh, you know, like, yeah, this teacher on one hand seems really awakened yes. and realized, but then there are other parts of this teacher's life that seem really like ambiguous, you know, and I, I just want to hold space for that. You yes. Know? But as we hold space for that ambiguity, we're also holding space for the teacher to be human. Hmm. Right. And that's the thing. That's, that's, that's the issue. It's like when these folks have these awakening experiences, somehow they're not human anymore. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's when they become even more human. Hmm. You know, and that's, that's been a really important ethic for me in my practice. It's like, ah, oh, I want to become human. I want to be enlightened in this body. Hmm you know, within my blackness, within my queerness. I want to be enlightened within these identity factors, not mm-hmm. outside of it. Mm, mm, mm. You know? Um, which is which isn't going to materialize anyway, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, you were talking about perfection earlier. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of um, Ruth King's, mm-hmm. uh, recently learned about her kind of reformulation of the three characteristics where she yeah. says, you know, it's not personal not perfect yeah. and not permanent. Yeah. And I love that. And I, it was it's so interesting to think about perfection and suffering. It's like, oh yeah, that is kind of what non-perfection looks like in a way. It's like, oh yeah, I'm suff- I suffer. I struggle. I, there, I, I'm confused. I lash mm-hmm. out. You know, I feel empty and alone. Like that means that I'm not perfect. Yeah. And um, it was just cool to hear that reformulation in that way. I really yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, and yes, and we we're so many of us are struggling to be other than ourselves, right? And that's for me. That's really, I hold a lot of sadness around that for myself and others. All the ways in which we feel as if we're not good enough, hmm. you know, and how that's reinforced by society and cultures and communities that, oh, we're just not good enough. We're we're not pretty enough. We're not skinny enough. We're not rich enough. We're not educated enough. We're not smart enough. Whatever it is, we're just not enough. You know, and that comes from capitalistic, white supremacist culture, you know, where like you're never good enough, Hmm. you know, Um, and we have to, we have to push against that really like really directly and really intensely and that's what i've had to do um over and over again i think that's one of the energies that comes out in the book and love and rage is like this is this is the the boundary that i've created that has helped me to have the space to do this really important work of loving you know and to do it unapologetically that's the thing, you know, and to do it unapologetic, unapologetically and not being interested in disappointing people, mm. you know, mm-hmm. that it's, if I'm going to get free, I have to actually begin to understand what I need to get free, you know, and sometimes what I need to do is not center your needs. Mm. but to actually censor and prioritize my needs. Mm. That goes back to the agency you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a hard one for folks because many of us have been conditioned to deprioritize and decenter our needs. Mm. 
You know, if we're not getting what we need, then we'll never get free, nor will we ever be really beneficial agents of support for others. Hmm. You know, I can't walk around being hungry and thirsty all the time trying to feed everyone else, but not myself, because hmm. I'm not going to survive that. Actually, I'll, I'm going to get really resentful and become dangerous, mm, mm. you know? Yeah. I'm going to start spitting in your food and not caring about the quality <laughs> of what I'm offering, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And that's passive aggressiveness, once again, you know, which mm. is where I revert to when I'm not really in full agency with myself or holding space for myself, I revert back into passive aggressiveness. And I know that's a really dangerous place for me. You know, not not that like I'm like going out and creating like massive violence from passive aggressiveness, but when I say dangerous for me, it's it's like that's when I start really hurting people, you know, mm. um, in ways that like I can in, in ways that do not reflect the level of practice that I've accomplished. Mm. Um you know, and that this is but this is all the nuance here, right? You know, this is what makes, I think, so much of, I think, love and rage really uncomfortable for people is that there's this complexity here. Mm. You know, I'm not just saying, oh, here's the Dharma, here's what the Dharma says. I'm saying, well, this is my experience of the Dharma. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. Like, this is my experience, Right. Um, and this is the ways in which I'm trying to translate these experiences to be of benefit. Yeah. No. Yeah. Which from, from an, from another perspective, I mean, from my perspective, it's also very much of a relief to, to read other people's work who are doing that, you know, to see people finding their own expressions of Dharma and, you know, to feel like there's an, a kind of opening up beyond what one of my uh, past guests, David Chapman, called like mm -hmm. the, the the consensus, uh, the Buddhist consensus, mm -hmm. you know, the modernist consensus. Yeah. You know, it's like this is the way Dharma is. Yeah. You know, it, it's been anointed by you know uh, the Dalai Lama and the, you know mm -hmm. Jack Cornfield and, you know, and, and Jack's one of my teachers. I love Jack. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, we we had this whole generation that you yeah. know sort of kind of like had a, an agreement about what the Dharma was. And yeah. it seems like that's really changing um, yeah. as the generational tide moves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, I always say, is your Dharma durable? Is it adaptive? Mm. Is it fluid? Right? You know, the teaching that we gave 30 years ago maybe needs to change now. Mm -hmm. And maybe the people who are dominating the the discourse around dharma actually may actually need to step aside and to mm. let other folks have that space mm. and i've been really experiencing that you know um this year and i've i've experienced this for a while but like i've i first experienced experienced that with reverend angel Mm. You know, years ago when she took me under her wings as a, a mentor and was like, okay, you know, this is what I know and understand about Dharma that I think can be helpful for you, mm. you know, but it's, and then it's, you know, continued over the years and it's been really ramped up this year where I've just been invited into spaces with Tara Brock, mm. you know, and Roshi Joan Halifax, you know, to for them to like introduce me mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. to their people and to say, you know what, 
Lamarad is doing something really interesting and unique, which I think needs to be, you know, supported. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's what's called for now, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, even Biku Bodhi as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this year. So, yeah, it's just like I'm just really interested in fluidity. Mm. You know, so I do so much work around undoing patriarchy, and for me, undoing patriarchy is really about getting adaptive and fluid, you know, and dismantling, categorizing and labeling, you know, and asking ourselves, who are we really, Mm. you know, outside of the prescriptions of a system? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really interesting inquiry. You know, I, I wanted to say too, you know, I think reading your, um, your article on the work of diversity, um, getting messy, getting uncomfortable, Mm. that there was, there was something there that was so helpful to take in as well, you know, uh, being part of a predominantly white community, you know, where you, you, you talked about how there's this sort of intellectualization of the work of diversity and inclusivity, right. Right. Um, but there aren't many steps being taken. And then you said, I think a lot of that has to do with fear, mm-hmm. um, fear of saying or doing the wrong thing and also mm-hmm. fear of exposing some of these deeply internalized biases that we've been raised with and are yeah. deeply ashamed of. I just found that to be so damn insightful yeah. um, of the white experience and so helpful for just kind of like having someone else outside of me say that. Mm-hmm. Cause I realized it's just true. Mm-hmm. It's just true. And um, uh, I just, yeah, I just wanted to share that, that I, that mm-hmm. I really appreciated that insight and it um, hearing it come from you, it helped it helped me recognize the truth of it deeper yeah. and feel a kind of desire and a call to, to, to not be held back by shame when mm-hmm. there's so much on the line. Yeah. Yeah. For others. Yeah. You know, and, and it's that, and it's also how do we get uncomfortable and choose discomfort? Mm. You know, I think diversity work, inclusivity work, I think people are trying to do it and stay comfortable at the same time. And it oh just gosh. doesn't work out. <laughs> better all. to avoid it than, than, yeah. to, than to do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not better, but it feels better to just avoid my experience. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's that's the hard, that's a really hard lesson. I get it. Mm. Right. I totally get it. You know, I think one of the the benefits of this year, you know, yes. the quarantine and pandemic is that like a lot of Dharma institutions are being disrupted, Hmm. you know, and I just feel like, you know, as we continue to move through this period, (laughs) you know, it's like, I think Dharma and institutional Dharma in terms of retreat centers and Dharma centers and so forth, I think there's going to be a whole different reality Hmm. post-pandemic, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. going to be a complete, I think a lot of institutions will not survive. They're not surviving, actually. Right. right. It's true. You know, and then I think we're going to emerge into something. Where we're going to, we're going to really like be doing real work around not just inclusivity, but sustainability, you know, but I believe sustainability is about diversity and inclusivity as well. Yeah. How do you see, how do you see those things linking up? Well, you know, it's. Like we we need to create communities that are really diverse, you know, and that and not just 
you're not talking about just like these basic kind of like identity diversities, but I'm talking about diversity of, you know, of how we understand Dharma, hmm. you know, hmm. and I think that's, that's the, that's the huge part. Inclusivity helps us to create Dharma communities that are really expansive and open and that begin to help us to see how Dharma can be expressed in so many different ways, hmm. you know, and that's going to be really sustainable as we move forward, because we're going to be in a new period, a new space where there's no going to, there's no such thing as normal anymore. So we're not going back to normal. We're going to something new, mm-hmm. you know, and what we're being called into is, you know, is communities where we're engaging and asking these questions, you know, and embracing just a wider, expansive, richer community now, mm. you know, um, not just like, uh, a white middle class affluent community you know mm-hmm. that we're we're actually asking ourselves what else mm-hmm. you know how do we begin to talk about ability and gender and class you know and sexuality you know within our communities you know yes um, i'm i'm excited about that mm-hmm. you know it strikes me while you're talking about that and about the sort of adaptiveness and fluidity you know it, it reminds me of of the whole theory of evolution you know mm-hmm. it's like if you don't have lots of different kinds of things going on then when when conditions change you know everything's just going to die yeah you know nothing's going to be able to adapt to the changing conditions so mm-hmm. it's sort of what you're describing to me is like a more evolutionary uh type of of, of dharma context where yeah. there's more difference and because of that you know, there's more thriving. Absolutely. Adapting. That's the key word Mm. here. Are we adapting? There's nothing like deep systematic disruption and unrest to persuade you to adapt. Mm -hmm. Say, you can say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And those of us who don't adapt don't survive. That's Darwinism. Really. If you don't adapt, you don't survive. Mm. You know, but when I bring it into, into more of like a justice, radical, progress, you know, pro, you know, framework, then it's like, yeah, I like I should always be fluid, actually. You know, the teaching is we should always be fluid and moving and changing and questioning and asking, you know, instead of getting, well, comfortable, hmm. you know. Yes. Yes. I think you, know, you, you mentioned the Dharma retreat centers and that's, mm-hmm. that's something I've been really thinking a lot about lately because we, we, we were pre pre pandemic. That was the only thing we were really doing uh, through Buddhist geeks in person. We're still yeah. some occasional retreats. Uh, and of course that was the first thing that had to go as, as soon as yeah. you know, we went sheltering in place. And, you know, out of that, I've, I've thought a lot about the, the retreat center model, you know, mm-hmm. how it's both ecologically unsustainable, you know, everyone's flying in from everywhere mm-hmm. to come mm-hmm. on retreat. Exactly. And it's also, you know, it, economically, you know, it, even when Dharma centers do a good job of making funds available and that sort of thing, it's still like who can take a week or a month or three months off of work, you know, even yeah. if it's free. Um, and so there's something yeah, it seems like there's an opportunity in all of this to kind of reimagine the retreat 
you know, model, which is, it's not to say like retreat is not useful, right. but just like, how are we, yeah, how are we practicing together in community and how are we deepening and what does that look like? Um, seems like, yeah, some of these old models, which, you know, in the, in the, in the centers that I trained in at IMS in Massachusetts and Spirit mm-hmm. Rock, you know, which again, I love these places and I love the people there. It's not, I'm not dissing them personally, right. Right. but, but it seemed like they created these, these systems and models and then they got kind of just ossified, like, yep. and then they've just been kind of cranking out more yogi sort of thing. Yeah. Centralized retreat center model. Yeah. Yeah, you and that's if it if it you know is that that old saying if it if it works don't fix it or if it ain't broken don't fix it mm. you know and then all of a sudden the context changes yes you know and now you're saying okay but what else now you know what else can we do um, there's also when you don't have diversity and inclusivity within an institution then you don't have creativity. Mm. You know, and so a lot of places will struggle to survive because they're not creative, mm. you know, um, and we have to, this is part of adapting. This is part of fluidity is getting creative and saying, okay, what else can we do? Yes. You know, what can we push to really like meet people where they are? And that's the thing that's, that's, that's the teaching for the post pandemic world. Okay. How do we, we meet people where they are instead of having people meet us? where we are, which is, you know, where we're at is really comfortable. So where you come and meet us here, you know, come to IMS, you know, come here, come to Spirit Rock, come and come to these places and meet us. But how do we start going to people mm. now? You know, and that's, that's going to take a lot. There's going to take decentering all these things that we've loved to center within these dominant institutions. You know, but if you want to survive, you have to get creative and fluid, you know, and you have to know it's, you know, it's not just about white folks. It's not just about, you know, straight folks. It's not about, you know, wealthy, moneyed folks. It's it's, it's about everyone, Hmm. you know, and it's possible to do, but are you willing to do the work? You know, I'm afraid a lot of places aren't going to do the work. May they rest in peace. Yeah. And and, and may they rest in peace and may people find the the practice and the dharma that they need to find. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited because I think there are a lot of new things emerging a lot of new practices a lot of new spaces emerging because we've had this ability to just go online yeah and connect to, to to places that we would have never connected to yes you know yes. and i think a post-pandemic world is going to be both virtual and in person yes that now we're going to have retreats that are both mixed reality yeah and that's yeah. really accessible you know it is it's very it's much more accessible that's for sure yeah. Hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Wow. This felt like a very wide ranging conversation. We covered, t- talked about a lot of different things here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Well, this is, you know, I think this is the interesting thing about talking about love and rage is because I talk about so much. And like often when I talk about the book with folks, it's like we only talk about one our particular group of things 
you know, which is what I love about the book. Like everything's topical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did it on purpose, actually. You know, I was like, I want to talk about everything. Mm -hmm. You know, everything. That's interesting because like you're saying, there's there's something for everyone if you're talking about everything. Yeah. Like different doorways uh, present there. Well, even writing the book, I thought, well, you know, I've never read a Dharma teacher talking about certain things. And so I'm, I'm making a point to mention certain things, even if it's just a, like a blurb. Yeah. Like, just kind of, mm-hmm. like you go into sex and the yeah. Me Too movement and yeah. things that are not so commonly spoken about in the Buddhist yeah. scene. Yeah. You know, and I was, you know, during really like the beginning of Me Too, I was like one of those teachers out there doing teachings on Me Too. Mm-hmm. You know, and in an effort to get other teachers to do it, <laughs> you know, particularly male identified cisgender teachers, because mm-hmm. I think Me Too is our issue. Mm-hmm. Like we have to do the work to dismantle, you know, uh, sexual and gender based violence within communities and we have to do that by talking about it and and by holding other teachers doing this abuse accountable Mm. Uh, and that's just not happening because again you know when you have a white mainstream dominated dharma community here in the united states you know justice isn't a part of that of the values that we're practicing you know as a community we don't do justice you know, and of course, there are segments of our community who are really into justice, right? Buddhist Peace Fellowship, for instance, that come to mind. And there are different centers like East Bay Meditation Center that are really committed to justice. Um, and many others, you know, who I'm not naming now. Um, but are, there are many more, I think, smaller groups who are doing justice. But, you know, we, again, this part, part of this post-pandemic world is, is going to be Buddhist communities aligning themselves with projects of justice mm-hmm. you know because as i move in and out of different you know faith-based communities you know people always ask okay what well, where are the buddhists oh that's interesting yeah where are the buddhists you know the you know all denominations many denominations of of, of christianity really show up strongly yes. and there are jewish justice groups that show up really strongly like these right. not just like a synagogue or a church or a community here and there but national organizations around these denominations and, and paths that are committed to justice you know and we and we and that's beginning to happen more and more you know uh um in our communities but a real commitment to justice, you know, a real commitment to everyone experiencing oppression. You know, um, I think that's so important. And it, it may take us kind of having to split from these mainstream organizations to say, you know what, I want to start a dharma that's really about justice. I mean, that's what radical dharma was about mm-hmm. for us. Right. You know, that was what we were trying to do. Um, I think because of that intention, I think radical Dharma has become the seminal text for folks. Yeah, that certainly seems true from where I'm sitting. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really strange because I had no idea what we were doing. We were just, <laughs> it was just, it just felt like friends getting together. 
and having conversations. That's all it felt like. And I said, well, who's going to be interested in this? <laughs> you know? Good timing. Um, yeah, it's it good timing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I'm excited about the post pandemic world. Whenever that happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, se- it seems like there's just been so much, uh, God, so much like just averting crisis after crisis. I mean, the last four years of just this sliding deeper and deeper into this authoritarian mm-hmm. kind yep. of fascist pit of despair, to be frank. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like I, I just haven't it feels like I haven't had the space to even envision or imagine like the future and something mm-hmm. good about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's, it, it's cool to hear you say, sharing that you're excited. Are there certain things that you are, could you say more about what you're excited about? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I think that like so many people are waking up in a massive way mm. to the inconsistencies of certain systems and they're asking questions about, okay, what can we do differently now? Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, the ways in which we, you know, as, have been traveling and the ways in which we've realized, oh, maybe, like, I don't have to travel so much, mm, you know? Yes. And that will have a direct, and it has had a direct impact on the climate. Um, you know, I think that we've been forced to rely on people around us more. And we're we're no longer taking... Con- physical connection for granted mm. anymore mm. um you know and i i i think that we um i think there's so many people who understand these really complex justice issues now in a way that they would have never have understood them if they weren't sheltering in place yeah and had the time <laughs> I, yeah i'd include you myself know? in that category for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, defunding the police is now this commonly understood thing now, you know, and it's still misconstrued. Absolutely. But like defund the police, everyone has heard of it now. And many people yes. can actually give a brief sentence as to what it means. That was unheard of before this year, you know? Yeah. I've heard this phrase uh, used the Overton window. Yeah. You know, it's like it's this this sort of range of what's politically acceptable and we can talk about as being possible. Like that that's yeah. really shifted yeah. in, in both directions, strangely. It's shifted on the left and the right. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. but but it is cool to see that shift toward more progressive politics. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I I find that really heartening after you know, 37 years of just mm-hmm. hearing the same kind of empty promises and no yeah. delivery. Yeah. You know, from from the political left here in the U.S., mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, we need a fucking change. Yeah, yeah. So, and th- yeah, there's a growing progressive movement now. Yes, that I'm excited about, and the it's squad. becoming more. Yeah, the squad. You know, mm-hmm. that squad is growing. Mm-hmm. That's true. They 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 made some gains over this last uh, election cycle. Yeah, and that's exciting. You know, I I want to be a part of a political part uh, a political party that's that reflects me. Mm. not just being part of a political party because they're the lesser of two evils. Right, right, right. You know? Um, so that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited yes. about, you know, I'm excited about moving 
you know, back to Georgia and getting involved in some of this progressive organizing. Yeah, cool. Because um, we have to be politically involved or, you know, yes, and there are systems, absolutely, that are being disrupted. And I think that, like, yeah, there may be even more struggle for us coming up. And I know there there is, absolutely. But uh, again, like, I'm still excited because I just feel like, there are people who are embodying what the struggle looks like and they can show us how to do the work, mm. you know, and I'm excited about that, you know, that it's not this mystery. Oh, how do we do this? How do we get through this? No, people are doing it. Yeah. And they're not, it seems like they're not so much on the, on the fringes where it's really hard to find. Exactly. Like they're kind of going toward the center. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Exactly. Well, I'm glad, glad you're one of the, one of those uh, people, Lamarad. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And um, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with the Buddhist geeks. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it's going to be really helpful. This Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, go check out Love and Rage. Highly recommend it. Um, it's a great Dharma book. I don't know if it's you mean it to be that, but it is to me. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I think it's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's excellent. <laughs> Cool. And, and just maybe just to close, is there anything else you want to, you want to share or things that we didn't touch on that you think are, are, are important? No, no, not at all. I think we covered a lot. Okay. Thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.